What are a few things you wish you knew when you started investing? Detecting trends? Predicting when to bounce? How about simply buying Bitcoin? You might sit in your bathrobe or on your couch all day staring at price charts, and this is definitely a way to learn how to trade. But for the past year now, there's a smarter, quicker way in the U.S. eToro. With millions of users in over 140 different countries, it's the top social trading platform worldwide. What's the advantage? eToro offers copy trading, where you can learn from and even, if you feel like trusting them, mirror the investing strategies of the top traders or friends on the platform. They even offer this crazy AI bot that trades off of social sentiment, wisdom of the crowds. You can follow that thing or, you know, just people. But there's no doubt about it. eToro makes smart trading, whether you're buying Bitcoin or Tesla two years ago, simple. So check out their website today, eToro. Smart crypto trading made easy. Hey guys, Dave Hollerith here. This is the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. And today I've got a very special interview with Ray Youssef, CEO of Paxful. Paxful has grown substantially in daily volume size over the last year by providing Bitcoin as a medium of exchange in developing countries in places like Africa and Central America. Because serving the unbanked or underbanked has always been one of Bitcoin's core value propositions, understanding more on how Paxful has done this and how their business ties in philanthropy seems to me to be fundamentally valuable and different from what we've seen in the Bitcoin business ecosystem over the last year. During our conversation, Ray explains how Paxful is different from other Bitcoin businesses in that they pay a lot of attention to what customers want and how the ecosystem more broadly can work towards helping the unbanked. We also talked about Ray's view on entrepreneurism and philanthropy. And I'll just say this interview is a lot different from most of the ones I've had because Ray's not your typical Bitcoin tech bro. He's the kind of guy that likes to get into the streets to figure out what's practical and what works. I think this is a huge part of what a lot of Bitcoin businesses are missing. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ray Youssef. Hey, Ray, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we tried to talk on Wednesday and uh, phone service is pretty bad. I uh, appreciate you coming on again. What's your travel schedule like these days? Well, I've uh, dedicated about half of my year to be in Africa this year. I'll be going to New York on Sunday and care of a few things there and with the Latin American market and then hopefully off to Africa for the second quarter to the third quarter. So I'll be pretty much traveling to every African country this year, God willing, and doing a lot of epic stuff. I'm thankful for that. So I didn't know about you until I heard about Paxful. And obviously that's because Paxful has been doing some incredible things. But once I started to learn about Paxful, I, you know, found out about you and I wanted to talk about obviously Paxville, uh, you, because I think you're an interesting person. I think you have a pretty interesting perspective and then, uh, just sort of philanthropy between, <laughs> between you personally and also your company. So on that note, can you tell me where Paxful is today? Well, Paxful, as far as the numbers go, is about 250 people. We grew almost 400% last year in the middle of the Bear market, we were growing. Well, everyone else is shutting down. We have about four offices around the world, soon to be five or six this year. And we have a lot of goals this year, but primarily this year, it's about growth and it's about launching new products to help people. And 
this is something that the entire industry can take a cue on as far as leadership goes. What cryptocurrency needs more than anything else is product-based thinking. We have to be thinking in terms of product. We have to kind of lose our love affair with how awesome this blockchain technology is and start thinking about humans because the original mission of Bitcoin was to liberate planet, financially speaking, to allow us to do the things we need to do to make our lives and our business work a lot easier. And almost all of those things revolve around money. There's so much money and wealth in the world. All we need to do is just restore the flow. That's the original mission. It's not a bunch of rich kids playing with crypto and digital assets and spending money that their daddy has and, and playing all these games with, you know, and destroying markets. That's not what crypto was created for. So let's go back to the people. Let's go back to product. And Paxful this year, all we're focused on is product and serving our customers and Continuing with that, we're going to be seeing our customers more and more. I just came back from Amsterdam and I met a Paxful vendor over there. He came over there just to meet us and he gave me so much amazing information. Every time I meet someone that trades on Paxful, I'm blown away by the amount of just just brilliance and entrepreneurial acumen that these people have. This guy built a business in Africa. He built a business in Korea and he's just a dude from America. But when you dive into peer-to-peer -peer finance, you start seeing the possibilities. And now this guy travels the world working from his laptop. He's living a dream life. Every time I meet people like that, I'm so thankful because it just shows me we are on the best possible path. And I don't mean just we at Paxful. I mean, all of us in crypto, all of us in peer-to-peer -peer finance, and all of us in the world, we are sitting on the biggest opportunity humanity has ever known to finally unleash all the trapped wealth of 6 billion humans on this planet. And I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I, I've been working in this space for three years. And, you know, given like what I was first learning about, especially just with all the talk and hype around blockchain technology, looking at Paxful now, it's not a company that I would have initially been like, man, they're doing something crazy. They're going to be the ones that appear to be out in the front. I, I, I was envisioning something totally different, like enterprise blockchain and things like that. And I've learned a lot since then, obviously. But um, Paxful to me, it's simple, but it's also a little bit contradictory, I think, to people who are not as accustomed to you know, Bitcoin companies. Can you sort of explain how it's a peer-to-peer -peer exchange and how it works? Sure. So ultimately, Paxful is just three things kind of cobbled together. It's a Bitcoin wallet. It's a uh, marketplace, like a listing service, like Craigslist. And it's an escrow service for Bitcoin. Those three things combined together give us the foundation to basically allow anyone to trade anything with anyone in the world. You know, with two peer-to-peer -peer transactions using Bitcoin as the clearing layer, literally any form of money can be converted into any other form of money. For example, someone in Africa can go onto Paxful and they can add some money to their Paxful wallet using a gift card or cash or an M-Pesa. That's one of the popular online wallets in Kenya. And once they have this money in their Paxful wallet, which restores Bitcoin is we love Bitcoin over here. Once they have that, they can literally turn it into anything else. He can, you know, if he got the money into his wallet with an Xbox gift card, he can take that Bitcoin and sell it for an Amazon gift card or a PayPal deposit to pay a bill off in the UK or an Alipay deposit to buy some merchandise from Alibaba in Shenzhen, China. He can turn it into cash in Cambodia for his sister who's traveling. It's a universal translator for money. This is the ultimate it's the killer app of Bitcoin. It's peer-to-peer -peer finance. And ultimately, peer-to-peer -peer finance is not just money transfer, but now also money conversion. You can turn money 
not just between currencies, but between any capsule or container of value, whether it's in a PayPal account, an Alipay account, in cash, in some bank account somewhere, a gift card, whatever it might be. This, this is all Paxful really is. And we figured this out, not because we're geniuses, but because we just listened to our users and we watched how they were using it. And it blows my mind every day how ingenious humans, us humans are. You know, if people have issues, they're going to find a way to solve it. And once you give them this universal translator for money, my goodness, you see the ingenuity of these people. It's amazing, especially what the African youth have done. Everything that we've learned, everything I'm going to share with you today, all the examples are literally because the people of, of Africa just showed us the way. And to our credit, we listen. And that's what we're good at. Yeah, your work in Africa, I understand it's the main source of your volume on, on the exchange on, on a daily basis. Um, they're exchanging in like Amazon, iTunes, gift cards, all that kind of stuff. Can you sort of explain why Africa has been so fundamental to Paxwell? Absolutely. So I think people are pretty familiar with Jack Dorsey's quote about Africa leading and defining the Bitcoin future that he put out late last year. And I'm so glad he did that because now the whole world is taking notice. So we came to that realization about three and a half years ago when we first went to Africa because we saw what you know the African people were doing on our platform. And I was like, wow, well, there's all these Africans, especially Nigerians on our platforms. Like, what's going on? And, you know, there is, you know, of course, there is a scamming industry in Western Africa, which we've had to deal with, but it's been more than worth it as hard as it's been. And why? Because the Nigerian people are absolutely amazing at entrepreneurship. So they had some problems and they still have some problems. So in Africa, financial issues are rife, meaning that to send money in Africa, even to the African country next door, is almost impossible. To the banking system, it is almost impossible. It's easier for them literally to get a bunch of cash and move it across the border on a truck than it is for them to send money across to the other country that might be just a few miles across the border. It's literally that bad. And it's not just within Africa. Sending money outside of Africa is extremely difficult. People in Western Africa particularly, it's almost impossible for them to, say, pay a bill to buy some merchandise from China. Right, they'll have to sell their local money for USD on the black market, find a way to get the USD to Hong Kong, then from Hong Kong, get it over to China. It's a pain. And so there are even more issues as well, because there's also all these domestic uh, restrictions that the countries put on the people themselves. I'll give you an example. About three years ago, the Nigerian Central Bank forbid people from sending money outside of the country meaning that you know, all these entrepreneurs that were uh, buying cars in the United States and shipping them over to Nigeria and selling them for a good profit, they couldn't do their business anymore. And the reason the Central Bank of Nigeria chose to do that was because they were very, very low on foreign currency for themselves. And that's yeah. because you know, the price of oil dropped. There was some geopolitical intrigue between America and Russia, and the Nigerians suffered. So the Central Bank said, hey, we're not going to let you send your money out of the country. Sorry. So what did these people do? They typed Bitcoin into a search engine. Hey, can this Bitcoin thing help me? And I actually talked to these folks online all the time. I'm CEO, but I'm always doing customer support. And, you know, I, I remember that first conversation I had with this one uh, young Nigerian dude. He was uh, importing Land Rovers from Detroit <laughs> to Nigeria, making like 300% profit or something. And he just got on there and I was, he told me, yeah, that's, he told me his business. And I, I, he told me the whole situation. After a while, it took some doing to get it out of him. And this was a very natural situation for them, but I couldn't believe it. He told me a lot of things too, like in, in Nigeria, for example, if you have a lot of money in your bank account and you give you a Visa or MasterCard debit card, they will not let you buy more than 100 USD a month with that piece of plastic. 
Imagine yeah. all of our plastic in our wallet being limited to a hundred bucks a month we can spend online with it. You wouldn't be buying an Xbox. You'd be lucky to buy a game. This guy, I, I saw a situation. I said, okay, bro, how about this? How much is your Land Rover? He said, oh, it's like, I think it was uh, seven or 8,000 USD. I said, okay, no problem. You just, all you need to do is buy some Bitcoin, 8,000 bucks worth, and then you can sell it to a guy in the United States and he will happily pay that invoice for you to that auction house. And he'll also pay the invoice to have it sent over to you to Africa. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. He didn't believe me. Let's we'll try a small transaction first. They buy a hundred bucks of Bitcoin, try to sell it to some guy in America for a PayPal deposit or something. And he did it and it worked. And he's like, wow. So then he bought 8,000 bucks of Bitcoin from a, a fellow in Nigeria, actually. And he made the payment, man. He found a guy, sold him his Bitcoin, gave him the invoice. The guy paid the invoice, even paid for the shipping. He was back in business. His profit margins went up like 500% because he was the only one in Nigeria that could do that. But then wow. everyone else also found out that this was happening. And Bitcoin started flooding into Nigeria because of this. And then the Nigerian government, after a few months, lifted their little ban. I don't know if what was happening in Nigeria with Paxful had anything to do with it. But that's just one side of the story. What we really had to do first was solve the liquidity problem of Bitcoin in Nigeria. And it's a liquidity problem that exists all throughout Africa and the emerging world, even well-developed economies like South Africa. Huge shortage of Bitcoin. If you go into any South African exchange right now, you'll see that the price is 6% over market because there are financial constraints in South Africa. I'll give you another example. They do not allow you to send out more than a million South African rand a year, which is about 80,000 US dollars. Hence, there's this premium. So in Nigeria, it was even worse. Bitcoin was going for like 30, 40% about four years ago when we first saw it was happening. And then we said, hey guys, you know, well, I know I didn't say, hey guys, no. They said, hey, to us, like, they found gift cards on Paxful and they found a way to make it work for remittance. So basically they got all their relatives abroad to buy a gift card and they give them the, the gift code, the gift card code and a picture of the gift card and a cash receipt. Then they would sell it to a guy in China and they would get Bitcoin and they would take that Bitcoin and they weren't interested in the Bitcoin. They would take the Bitcoin and they would sell it to another guy in Nigeria and say, Hey, just send me some local money to my bank account. And that's still happening to this day to the tune of like $40, $50 million a week just between Nigeria and China alone, which is great because it helps people send money faster. However, it's even better because it solved the liquidity problem of Bitcoin in Africa, particularly in Africa's biggest economy, which was Nigeria. This was huge because without enough liquidity of crypto in those economies, nothing can happen. And it's notoriously difficult for you know anyone to get money out of Africa. This has always been the challenge, not just for people, but for even Western corporations who are operating in Africa. So we managed to solve that problem to an extent. And now we have to do the same thing throughout the entire African continent. And once we do that, it's going to open up the path for Africa being the world's first crypto continent. Why? There's tremendous need for financial services there. Two, there are tremendous resources in Africa, and it's, it's not the resources in the ground. It's the young people and you know, the knowledge and ambition that drives them. This all coming together with the fact that Africa, you know, 
has let's say, one of the most mobily connected populations in the world, one of the youngest populations in the world, 60% of the, of the world's population growth across the next, you know, 50 years plus, you know, they have already leapfrogged over banking and gone to online wallets. Absolutely. Africa will become the world's first crypto continent. And they're already leading the way. It's just people haven't noticed yet, but Jack of Twitter did. So <laughs> hopefully everyone else will follow and give us a hand because we cannot do this by ourselves. Yeah, Ray, you might not be able to speak specifically to this country, but uh, I've been paying a lot of attention to Lebanon, and they're in a financial crisis right now. They have a problem with not having enough foreign currency, so there are caps on bank accounts. Do you guys work with Lebanon at all? Uh, Short answer, no. We're an American company regulated by America. We're actually the leading peer-to-peer exchange as far as uh, getting regulated in the world. We're getting going all for all state licenses, licenses in every jurisdiction to protect our peers, really, because they're the ones that really need it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I will talk about Lebanon a little bit, even though we cannot get directly involved there because it's on the OFAC sanctions list and it's kind of a messy situation. Right. I, I do. My heart is with the people there. So I'll give everyone just a little recap of what's going on over there. So there's riots. People are breaking into banks, destroying the banks. Why? Because the banks said, hey, we're only going to give you 200 bucks a week to everyone. And people can barely survive. Why did they do that? Well, number one, the Lebanese lira is bound, pegged to the U.S. dollar meaning that the issue currency, the Lebanese central bank, needs to have U.S. dollars in its bank account. There are no U.S. dollars in Lebanon, first of all, because U.S. dollars exist in the Federal Reserve in New York City in their electronic account. So what happened was, overnight, someone withdrew over $30 billion from the Lebanese banking system, and they had no more money. So because their their currency is bound to the USD, it makes it stable, right? It, it, it can't their economy cannot be attacked like Venezuela with inflation. So what happened was they just removed their reserves from their system, and now they're suffering from mass deflation. There's not enough currency to go around. So that was the weakness in their system, and it's been ex- being exploited right now, and the people are suffering. It makes sense with regulations, but I, f- I feel like uh, Lebanon would be a really good place to use Paxful. Yeah, I mean, those folks, you know, like the word hawala in Arabic means money transfer. So, you know, the Muslims started this, I think, 1400 years ago when the Roman Empire started forbidding agency, meaning people couldn't transact on behalf of each other. So naturally, the Muslims came out and said, hey, we got to get trade going here. So let's come up with a way to transfer money uh, through intermediaries. And they, they figured it out. And they, but it still requires a trust connection. Like, you know, you're going to go send money to Islamabad from Cairo. Uh, you know, you're going to go to some guy named Habib on the street. Well, he's got a cousin over in Islamabad. That trust relationship between them allows them to exchange money for you. And they're reconciled between each other. Now we have Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain, which removes that trusted connection. So basically what Paxful does is it gives you an army of these magical friends all over the world that will collect a payment for you or make a payment for you anywhere in the world using whatever financial networks they have in their name. It's a beautiful invention. There's really nothing better. Yeah. um, I want to ask too about uh, iTunes gift cards. They're a huge part of Paxful's volume as far as... uh, a payment method. And, and why is that? Why are people so into getting iTunes gift cards? It's a great question. You know, when we saw what was happening, it was like, okay, we know why the Africans are doing this. They want to send money back home and they're just selling the gift card for Bitcoin and 
trading the Bitcoin in for local money. That's how they're sending money. Cool. That explains that part. But why the heck are all these Chinese dudes buying up literally, you know, tens of millions of dollars of iTunes gift cards every week? What are you doing with all that iTunes credit? Like how many online in-game purchases can they make in Clash of Clans? I don't know. So, you know, we, we've been trying to answer that question for a while, but we've got a lot of really good information. Uh, our general counsel was talking to someone from some regulatory committee in the United States. And he shared with them something that I thought was really interesting. Apparently, with that, the, these are I, U.S. iTunes gift cards or European. And uh, apparently, when the Chinese credit those to their account, they are now able to access Western media. Yeah. The credit from those cards allows them to access pretty much everything. So it's, it's kind of like a way to get around the Great Firewall. Yeah, that's crazy. That's an anti-censorship thing. Which was why Paxwell kind of has a reputation now in China. I don't know if the Communist Party likes us very much for that reason, but... You joined the list, yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it sounds like you serve anybody, especially to the underbanked and unbanked. Um, I'm curious about, uh, are, are there any sort of like demographics as far as like professions that come out um, for people who use Paxful a lot? Well, uh, our vendors, meaning our market makers, the people that run business on there, it's like a new breed of these digital nomads that now work off their laptops. Like the fellow I met in Amsterdam, he travels the world and he's on Paxful. He's got like five different trade routes going, all bringing him in revenue and he just travels the world and does his thing. This is a really interesting new breed of peer-to-peer money changers that we see popping up. And what's even more beautiful is that it's not just, you know, white boys from America doing this. It's, you know, like there's this one uh, fellow in South Africa. He built his own little version of Western Union on top of Paxful. The girl in Kenya, she built her own little version of PayPal on top of Paxful. And the more we see this, the more it just dawns on us. This is really the birth of a new kind of, you know, now we have all these Uber and Lyft drivers, right? That are making their money with peer-to-peer transportation. Yeah. And now we have a whole new breed of peer-to-peer finance, digital nomads and entrepreneurs that are just springing up all over the world. What's also interesting is that now more and more, a lot of the B2B side is really opening up. Like this fellow I met in Nigeria, he figured out a way to um, have Western corporations pay people in Nigeria using Bitcoin. And, you know, he just, first he said, hey, you just give me the Bitcoin and I will send the money people to your virtual assistants in Malawi, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Zimbabwe, whatever. And he's running his own little version there, like basically paying their settlements for them. So these B2B services are really opening up and more of these vendors, these entrepreneurs, these P2P finance money changers are getting into the B2B side. And what we're also noticing is that just business owners are coming to us and these guys have bank accounts. They have a lot of bank accounts. They're what I call the overbanked. And I remember one fellow just came to me and he's like, you know, he ran his caviar business. So he sold very expensive caviar to <laughs> people from all over the world, like a lot of Russians and all that. And he told me, hey, is there any way you can help me? And I was like, how? So apparently he just, he can't take it anymore. Every time he gets a payment, $60,000 from Oleg and Vladivostok or whatever, his bank calls him up and says, where did you get this money? Blah, blah. And they just bust his balls and he has to spend like six hours out of his day trying to clear that up for them. And he has to do this each and every single time. So even the overbanked, especially the overbanked, are, are starting to discover peer-to-peer finance and what it can do for them. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I I would like to see how that happened because I mean, I think the one difference though, between 
Paxful and say Uber is that uh, it sounds like there's a much different level of scaling that people can do if they try and make a business off of Paxful. Is that correct? That's absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the people that are writing bots on top of the Paxful API. I mean, this one young guy, I think he's cleaning like a quarter million dollars a week and most of it is profit with his army of bots. It's amazing what we see happening here. And it's one of our challenges now to upgrade our entire system to be like a true platform for the entire world that connects not just the underbank to the unbanked, but the banks and the overbank to the underbank and the bank. That is really the challenge here. And it's going to require us, us scaling to a level that, I mean, I'm talking like a Google type level here to actually be able to serve all these people across all these different payment methods, currencies, languages. It really is the greatest challenge, business challenge of the past hundred years. The only way we're going to do it is by working together. Speaking of uh, Google level, do you see, not that it exists yet, but do you see Facebook's Libra as at all potentially competing with how Paxful uses Bitcoin? Uh, no, I don't see them as competition. Rather, I, I wish them every success and uh, we can integrate them into our system. I don't see the banks as competition either. Our mission is to build, and this is the mission for all of everyone in crypto and Bitcoin land. It is not to take down the banks or any of that nonsense. You can forget about that. You got no aircraft carriers and you just get those daydreams out of your head. Okay, we're grownups here. We're here to serve and help the people. Right? How are we going to do that? The only way we can do that is by bringing every financial network, whether the, the banks, PayPal, you know, all this cash in the world, everything underneath this one umbrella that says, hey, if there's this money here, you can turn it into money there, no problem. I think there's 2,000 financial networks on the planet and only 3% of them talk to each other. This is a problem, a massive problem. And here we are, we finally have a toolkit that can solve this problem. And what are we doing? We're playing, you know, games of speculation and pumping and dumping and, and talking about sharding and all this other nonsense. It's like, <laughs> here, we need all the brains in crypto and there are some amazing brainiacs out here to focus solely on this problem, connecting the world's money together. And Bitcoin is built to do that. Yeah, I've heard you speak before about uh, how harmful speculation can be. Can you sort of explain uh, that that viewpoint? Yeah, and I understand it's a bit of a you know opaque topic for people. Hodling is not speculation. Hodling is an investment, and it's good in a lot of ways. Uh, I wish people would take some of that money and maybe use it to help other people start their own business. But speculation. You know, think Gordon Gecko. Think playing all these games with information that not everyone has to increase your holdings. So at the end of the day, you, one side always wins and the other side, the little guy always loses. Essentially, it's what at the, is at the heart of speculation. There's a reason why every religion in the world has all these little pauses in there to stop that. There's a reason why, you know, huge financial regulatory organizations like the SEC have been created to stop that because it's destructive. It destroys investor confidence. It harms the retail investors and, and you know just the big fat cats are walking their way to the bank you know we've got this same epidemic now in crypto we were supposed to be the guys that saved everyone from this and instead we're doing it on a level that makes some of those wall street gordon Gecko boys blush like really <laughs> it's like what are we doing right when the bitcoin price goes really high how does it affect uh paxful it's an interesting question actually so uh, our kind of trend there is the opposite of everywhere else um, because when the, when you, if you are selling Bitcoin and the price is spiking up, like say you, you sold some Bitcoin, you made a 10% profit on that. 
And then all of a sudden, it took, you know, say it took one day for that trade to happen. Now the price of Bitcoin jumped up by 20%. So now you have to buy back the Bitcoin at a loss that you just sold. So when the price goes up, it actually hurts our marketplace. Yeah. It's when it goes down that it actually helps our marketplace, which is kind of strange, but it, it's actually a good thing, in my opinion, because it, it puts the focus on the utility, not on just all these, you know, fake price swings. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, these bull runs, they se- tend to happen less often than everything else. So that's one point too, I guess. Um, so like Paxful is obviously... Um, serving a lot of people who don't have access to the kind of financial freedom that a lot of us take advantage of in America. You guys also do a ton with philanthropy. Um, you're, you're building with Bitcoin initiative. I know you, you've built several schools in Africa. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So built with Bitcoin is an idea I had about three years ago. And um, just a little background on me. I, um, you remember Hurricane Katrina, right? And what it did to New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I um, and I heard about that when I was in New York, and I was pretty heartbroken about it. And uh, I said, "Hell, I'm gonna go over there myself." You know, no Salvation Army or Red Cross or anything. I just got over there. I caught a plane to Mobile, and then drove all the way to New Orleans. And I got into the city the very first day. They were actually letting people back in; otherwise, you would have gotten shot. It was martial law. And long story short. I managed to help rebuild the first school to open up in the city. It's the New Orleans Cathedral Academy. I met these five Dominican nuns, and you know, out of everyone in that area, the army, the police, the police and fire department weren't even there. Uh, Salvation Army Red Cross didn't know what was going on. Those nuns knew everything, and I actually helped rebuild the school with them. And because of that, the police and fire department had a place to put their kids, so they started coming back into the city. And then the city started coming back online. I saw firsthand how powerful just education can be. It's more than just, you know, educating people. It's actually it's actually the basis of civilization. People are not going to come back to a place unless they know they can educate their children there. So that was the first school I built or rebuilt rather. And I had a dream since then. I just want to build more schools. I would love to build a hundred schools, especially in places that need it most, like Africa and the emerging world. So, you know, when Arthur and I, my co-founder, were sitting here and it was like, oh, we got all this money here. You know, we work really hard. We, you know, watched every penny. What are we going to do with it? We're going to buy some Lambos. I said, no, fuck the Lambos, man. We can do something else with this. I said, hey, let's build 100 schools in Africa. And it's funny because when I turned to my co-founder and said this, he was just like, okay, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the reason we could do this is because we didn't have any VCs. We were all completely bootstrapped. So no one was watching over our backs. There's no way any VC would let us do that. But it's just something I wanted to do. I didn't know how it would help us financially speaking. But we just started. I said, okay, I'm going to build the first two schools myself. I funded the first two schools in Rwanda myself. And educate about 400 students right now. And it's more than just a school. It's full water wells, water treatment, water filtration, storage. Um, It's a water distribution point. More about that later. It's three school buildings for over 400 children. We bought them, you know, everything, uniforms, desks educated the educators built a little clinic there as well so now people have been getting health care it's, it's like a little campus there's a kitchen there there's a sports field there's a little garden so those first two schools in rwanda are a huge success and now we're building our third school in the chacos county in kenya it's a place that hasn't had a drop of water for the past three and a half years so there's tremendous need there 
And our plan this year is to build a total of six schools, four in Africa and two in another place, which I will announce soon. But it's not just Africa. It's the entire world. It's wherever people need help most. And this is sustainable education. Because, and this is something I believe, I don't know why I believe this so much, but I feel very strongly about this, despite what my accountants and lawyers are telling me. I don't believe that social good should just be something that for-profit companies outsource to non-for-profit companies. I believe it should be a central mission of every for-profit company's it should be a part of their central mission, and it should also be something that is enclosed within the for-profit structure. Why? Because as an entrepreneur, I know the entrepreneurial drive is the strongest, most powerful tool we have. It can literally change the world. Look what it's done for the past 20 years. To take that and say, okay, no, this, this non-for-profit stuff, the philanthropy stuff, is not worth of our entrepreneurial drive. Let's outsource it to some people who really don't care too much. No, it has to be driven by the entrepreneurial spirit. That is how we're going to change the world. Bitcoin is obviously a connection. You're a Bitcoin business and that's how you've gotten the money to do this philanthropy. But is there anything unique to using Bitcoin or Bitcoin address to raise funds for the Build With Bitcoin initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take the first example in Rwanda. So it's going to cost like a quarter million bucks to put up this first campus with these two schools. And it's like, okay, how are we going to get the money to Rwanda? So, well, we could just wire the money from our bank accounts in the United States to uh, Rwanda bank account and let them all figure it out from there. Okay. Or we could use the opportunity to get Bitcoin into Rwanda because there's a huge premium on Bitcoin in Rwanda, up to 20%. is not enough Bitcoin in the country. So let's put the Bitcoin into the country, right? And okay, but the builders are not going to accept Bitcoin, right? The people laying the bricks are not going to take Bitcoin. They can't use it. They want local money. Yeah. This is a very sobering point that people in crypto have to understand. There's a lot of Bitcoin crypto charities that are like, oh yeah, we're going to prove the transparency of the blockchain and we're going to get every single little transaction on the blockchain so everyone can see where the money's going. Uh, no, no one gives a fuck at all. Okay, no one. Uh, you're not going to convince these people don't some of them don't even have a smartphone you think you're going to get them to put every little thing and brick paid for on the blockchain no that is not what the blockchain is for we went to rwanda we had a quarter million bucks we had no we had like two hundred twenty thousand bucks of bitcoin and we said hey guys we're going to sell you this bitcoin at market rate a little above market rate i think we sold it for them for plus five percent and they were super happy to have that price but otherwise it'd be like plus twenty percent all we sold the bitcoin to paxful vendors over there they gave us local money and then you know, our people on the ground gave that local money away to the builders and took care of the operation like that and the big bonus there is that we just had a big infusion of bitcoin into the rwandan economy so they don't have to be poorer than Craig Wright anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Using Bitcoin as a way to give donors more transparency, do you think that's helpful at all or, or it doesn't matter really? Uh, I haven't seen a place where it could be practically used. I mean, if you're going to actually do something on the ground in these places, forget about the blockchain. Like people are not thinking about that. Do you actually want to do something there or not? If you do, then work with the instruments that people have there. And if blockchain can be useful in this way as to act like a clearing layer and to create liquidity in the place there and enable a whole generation of peer-to-peer -peer money changers in Rwanda, then yes, absolutely. That's how it makes sense. But this whole... You know, trying to get every single transaction on the block. No, no, that, that, that will happen one day. 
but that's not where our attention should be. Again, it's focusing on absolutely the wrong place. Yeah, I know people are not gonna like me saying this stuff, but on the ground from someone that's like had to actually make things happen on the street, that's absolutely the truth. Well, so how, how can people donate Bitcoin to the Build with Bitcoin fund? Well, there's a buildwithbitcoin.org website there, and uh, there's a QR code, Bitcoin address. And don't worry, guys, it's not my <laughs> QR code address. It's going to go straight to Zamzam Water. They're the guys that built all of our schools. And uh-huh. They have a Paxful wallet goes there and they, all they do is like, hey, they sell the Bitcoin for local cash to make things happen. And the beautiful thing about Zamzam Water and any of the charities that we work with is that 100% of everything you donate goes to helping the people. If you want to contribute to their administrative costs, you have to explicitly call them up and you know work something out with them to do that. But And I want to stress that point. The, all these guys that we deal with are absolutely the best human beings I've ever met in my life. I'm not a big charity guy. I never believed in charities, especially after building that first school in New Orleans. Because I went there and I saw the Salvation Army and the Red Cross were not doing a damn thing. They didn't even know what was going on. But I very happily helped those nuns that made things happen on the street. So it's all about finding those people who can truly execute on the ground, those, you know, real life angels. And Bitcoin is one of the best things for these people, right? Because they can actually work with it. They're completely transparent. They don't have to go through any of the financial hoops Mm -hmm. and it's, they can convert it into anything, anywhere. It's beautiful. You're what you're talking about charities. Uh, that also made me think about the fact that Paxful is bootstrapped. I've heard I heard somebody the other day, a politician, talk about how bootstrapping originally was a term. You know, is a term for like pulling yourself up by your like shoe or bootlaces, and it's not possible actually. What's your take on bootstrapping? Why did you do it? Well, we did because we had no choice. <laughs> That's number one. Man, me and my co-founder were actually homeless for a few months in New York, you know, while we're trying to pull all this together and everything. We just ran out of all of our personal funds. We were 100% in it. And we had to go couch surfing, call up ex-girlfriends. It was not fun. I wandered the streets, you know, for quite a few weeks just trying to understand and just keep things going so look bootstrapping i'll tell you as a serial entrepreneur it's all i've ever done i've never taken money from anyone just because you know i don't like vcs i'm sorry to any vc out there i'm sure maybe we'll work with them one day but only on our terms you know it is absolutely possible to bootstrap but honestly and i say this with all seriousness i don't mean to offend any people out there but you have to say your prayers, my man. You have to ask God to help you because it is a savage game out there and you need help from above if you're really going to do it. But it's possible. They have 250 people in this company and it's bootstrapped 100%. And we're building schools across the world. Like that is, it's a dream come true. And it's not because we're such awesome business people. I mean, there are amazing business people here. My co-founder is amazing, but really we had some help from above. And I, I say that with all honesty. Don't mean to offend any atheists out there. I'm kind of just thinking on that. That was, that was pretty heavy, man. <laughs> it's the truth, brother. It really yeah. is, man. People like, get such big heads in this industry. They think they're so smart. And, you know, I, I, my first two startups were hugely successful. I was a young guy. And then I thought, okay, I took a break. And I was like, all right, I'm going to come back and do it all over again. I had 11 failures in a row. 11 failures in a row, man. To like the, like the prime of my youth. And it was yeah. demoralizing, no girlfriend, nothing like, you know, like God brought me down a couple of notches to the point where I, I really had to beg someone who was listening. And the only one who was listening was this, this being that made me. So I said, please help me. I, I don't know what to do. 
I can't do without you. And I got it. Boy, did I get it, man. I got it. <laughs> I got it, space. <laughs> and any, anyone there out there listening can too. And I, I'll stop with all this. It's my story, brother. I'm not ashamed of it, man. I'm proud. Yeah, we don't censor on the show. Well, so like, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, let's say Paxful is wildly successful 10 years from now, and then you want to do something else. What, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I will say that I've always had an interest in science, particularly the work of the Victorian era scientists. Like, really? You know, Tesla. Yeah, Tesla was the pinnacle of the Victorian experimenters. But there was literally a, a throng of brilliant scientists all around him at that time and before, right? even more brilliant than him, which is hard to believe but it's true so mm -hmm. in my spare time i just read their old books and i'm just trying to pick up where they left off it's kind of a hobby of mine but the same way we're sitting right now in the greatest opportunity humanity's ever known by unleashing all this trapped wealth you know amongst this invisible planet of six billion humans as amazing as that is the future is even brighter after that because we are truly living in times of abundance, and it might not seem that way with all the poverty and pain that we have in the world, but human ingenuity can solve any problem, any problem whatsoever. I'm looking forward to the day when Tesla's dream of a completely connected and fully powered world will materialize, and all everything we need is right before us. All we have to do is just unleash all this trap potential, and I know in my heart I will play a part in that. I would be honored to do so, because nothing could serve humanity more than having, you know, like a free power network and a free communications network for the entire world. Everything would change. Humans would be back in charge. And that makes me happier than anything. So that's the world I'm fighting for. This is the start. Jesus, man. How do I fight? <laughs> <laughs> um, I like literally can't articulate a valid re reaction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you guys play by the regulatory rules. It sounds like, um, Peer-to-peer -peer exchanges also do come at the cost of being more prone to scams. Uh, I've even read a Medium post uh, you wrote about just sort of like how to avoid scams on Paxful. Can you sort of explain how people should avoid scams on Paxful? Absolutely. So, you know, the biggest challenge of peer-to-peer -peer finance is not AML or money laundering or any of this. No, the biggest challenge is fraud. Why? Because think about what we've done. We have basically given every single human being on the planet access to every single financial network in the world. The good thing is that Bitcoin is a part of this, meaning that you can't really defraud Bitcoin, right? Because it's irreversible. However, all of every financial payment method and network in the world with enough political will is reversible, right? So there's one side of the transaction that is at risk just because it's, you know, the fiat money system is, it's, it's not as good as Bitcoin, right? Yeah. So we have now got guys in, you know, some place in Tamil Nadu in India who makes, you know, maybe if he's lucky, he'll make a hundred bucks a month, right? It's worth it for him to spend 10 hours out of his day trying to scam you out of 40 bucks. It really is. It makes perfect sense. And we're giving the, we're not cutting this guy out, right? So how do we reconcile this? Because the world wants a safe and open money system, but if it's open and not safe, they're not going to use it right? This is big. Safe, open, and easy. So how do we keep things safe? There's no simple answer there, but like, let's look at KYC, the very controversial topic. KYC and Bitcoin, no one likes it. Okay, well, here's the truth. If you go into Paxful right now and you try to buy some Bitcoin with PayPal, there's a very good chance that the person selling you the Bitcoin with their PayPal account is going to ask for your ID. Why? 
but they want to know that you're not a hacker that stole this Bitcoin, uh, this PayPal account from someone, right? It's just trying to get their Bitcoin and then charge them back. They want to know that you actually own the account. So KYC has been a part of European finance for a long time just because the people that are selling the Bitcoin want to protect themselves. The problem is, is that KYC is broken across the entire industry. Why? Well, first of all, let me just make it clear the peoples of Africa and the emerging world, they have no problems with KYC. They'll very happily give you all the identification if you can give them access to financial services. They'll be so thankful, right? In Nigeria and in Kenya, you cannot get a SIM card unless you actually give them a biometric fingerprint scan. Wow. This is the truth. So KYC exists there. The problem is, is like the, the reason why a lot of people in those economies freak out when they see KYC is, because, for example, like these Western KYC systems, like Fido, Jumio, they're, you know, we use Jumio, they're great, but you know, they work in the West. They don't work in the rest of the world with these non-Latin alphabets and, and all these different, uh, for example, in Nigeria, there's five different kinds of national ID. None of them have an expiration date. And you're going to deny their KYC, their ID, because it doesn't have an expiration date. <laughs> in Kenya, there's no such thing as proof of address. There's no such thing as that. It doesn't exist, which is why Kenyans freak, flip out when they see KYC. They're like, oh man, I can't, but they want a KYC. They're honest people. People. They want to give you all their information, but you ask them something doesn't exist. So we've had to go in now and build out a whole localized KYC infrastructure. Not because we want to, it's like a whole other company in and of itself, but because we have to, because no one has done it right now. So we, and one of the things that we do when we go into any countries, we say, okay, let's figure out the KYC situation over here. We got to make this happen. And now we're trying to figure out a way to get proof of address in Africa. It's some way to make that happen. This is hugely perplexing, but we have to do this because this is one of the things that keeps the marketplace safe. So now that's out of the way. And you see how the, like whenever you're trying to keep safety, like there's all these little challenges that pop up that are actually humongous challenges. Like KYC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have to actually, yeah. 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 What are, what are your ideas for how to create a, an African version of, of like proof of address? It's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm juggling right now, but ultimately, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to give everyone in the world an ID. There's so many people in Africa that don't have any identification at all. Literally, they're out in the, the villages, right? In Kenya, they have a name for that, Mama Boga. She's out in the, in the boonies, right? We, one of my dreams is, I don't know how long it's going to take, 10 years, 5 years, to actually be able to go out and give everyone in Africa a PAX ID and to geolocate them with like even a latitude and longitude. A lot of them don't even have a proper address, let alone proof of address. Right, so that's one of the things we could do. We could mobilize our new peer program, which is very successful, and basically create these community-based financial groups that will have trust within our system. And they'll, you know, if you want to get ID'd, someone will go out to your village, take a picture of you, KYC you with a latitude and longitude, and that could be it. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about right now, but that's not easy to do. It's extremely hard to scale that up and actually implement that on the ground. Even you know, local governments haven't tried to do this, but yeah, it's a huge challenge. It's something I think about constantly. And if anyone has any ideas on how to solve this proof of address thing in Africa, please do reach out to me as a regulated U.S. corporation. We have to actually conquer this, you know, and it's the only way we're really going to bring the wealth of Africa into the fold. It's hard. Yeah. So I can keep talking about how to avoid scams. It takes like a couple of hours, honestly. I'm just going to put a link to that article you wrote about how to avoid scams in our show notes. I, you, you've, you've been really good about your time. I, I just had uh, one more like random set of questions I wanted to ask about. So you grew up helping your, your parents uh, run a newsstand in New York. I was thinking about that and I was like, this guy understands 
a time, I think, when we were consuming news differently. I could be wrong about that. Maybe they're still a big deal. But I'm curious, like, are newsstands still being used now? Or is there like a digital equivalent? Like, how, what do you think? Oh, uh, yeah, there's a little newsstand right in front of my apartment in Chelsea. I mean, they, they, they sell like candies and cigarettes and pornography. But, you know, they, it's just a little kiosk is really what it is right now. They don't really, it's not really about the news anymore. Right. But yeah. they're still around. And it's one of the best ways to actually understand business and understand people. If you can you know, deal with people on the street, if you can figure out how to solve a business problem on paper, then, hey, technology is here to help you scale it up. It is not the men's, the, you know, the end all of, of a business problem. It's just a way to scale. And us, all of us geeks have to keep that in mind. And if we can do that and think about things in a product way with people first, we'll be hugely successful. That's not happening right now, because believe me, teaching people how to think in terms of product is extremely difficult. It's like, you know, the difference between, uh, I don't know, an empire soldier in Star Wars compared to a Jedi, right? <laughs> They're both good at their jobs, but to do product, so much has to come into that. And that's really what we're trying to do this year. We're trying to think in terms of product and unleash products based on real use cases across the entire spectrum of needs out there. And the needs are tremendous. And also solving geopolitical problems like the lack of Bitcoin in Africa. We solved it in Western Africa. It's time to solve it in South Africa, Eastern Africa, it's, and, and connect the whole world together. So this is a call out to everyone listening. Please, if you want to solve the biggest challenges in the world, if you, know, you're, you have the ambition, if you're not afraid to put your ear to the ground and deal with real people, come over to Paxful. We'll make, we'll make the dream happen over here, one step at a time. Ray, this has been an incredible conversation. I, thanks so much for coming on, dude. I, I, I really enjoyed this. So did I, brother. Great questions, man. Seriously. Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.